0: Welcome to another weekend bonus episode of the Tech Meme Ride Home. I'm Brian McCullough. So remember that long read from Friday, the one about the supermarkets? I knew a lot of physical retail was under threat from e-commerce, but do we have to worry about the grocery store too? As I said, this was something I had never considered. So read the piece because I got in touch with the author, Joe Fassler, to see what the story is with grocery stores. And yes, there are larger societal and cultural and even cyclical shifts imperiling the traditional grocery market, but it's also tech and e-commerce too, of course. A deeper dive into all of this, plus a look at the star of Joe's piece, the grocery store architect who is trying to blow up the grocery store in order to save it. Please enjoy. So I mentioned your piece about the grocery industry uh, in this week's Long Read segment. Uh, And the reason that it was fascinating to me is like, uh, before reading it, I had never considered that supermarkets were a category of retail that was imperiled. You know what I mean? Like, In the whole retail apocalypse, like, sure, blockbuster videos are gone, malls are going to go away, maybe people will still want to go to a store to try clothes on, maybe not, but I always assumed that if there was one sort of cockroach that would be around after the apocalypse, it was going to be grocery stores, and your piece made me think for the first time, maybe that's not the case.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I I think you're right. I, I think when we think of the the, you know, so-called retail apocalypse, it's it's Toys R Us, you know, it's a lot of these big um big box stores that just, you know, can't can't compete with um with Amazon, but the fact, and and food has steady demand, right? It's not like something like blockbuster video where like the VHS tape or the DVD can kind of just be outmoded. Mm -hmm. Um, people are always going to need food. Right. Um, so in, in that sense, I think you're right that it's a little counterintuitive, but the fact is that the, um, the world of food retail is changing rapidly and the continued survival of supermarkets, at least supermarkets as we, as we know them is, is, you know, not guaranteed.
0: Well, let me, because it is it is a little more complicated than, oh, everybody's gonna buy their food online. So, yeah. before we get into, like, um, the actual piece itself, can, can we just spend some time uh, looking at, essentially, the way the supermarket industry in North America has been? Um, reading your piece, like, I- I'm reminded kind of of the way newspapers used to be, like, supermarkets kind of have had local monopolies for like the last 100 mm-hmm. years or so. Like, I'm thinking of like, there's Meyer in the upper Midwest, Publix in Florida, hy I could go on and on and on. Um, do you have any sense of why the grocery market has, at least until the era of Walmart and stuff like that, maintained its sort of local flavor as opposed to being fully nationalized and, and, and chained up and that sort of thing?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think, uh, you know, A&P, for instance, it's, it's not that there haven't been right, big, right. big dominant chains. It's just I think that they have uh, been more sort of regionally oriented, as you mentioned. So before Walmart, there was A&P, which is, of course, now out of business. Um, and that was seen sort of as the great mechanizer that was um, killing the, you know, the mom and pop um, grocery shops of yore. Um, but no, national chains really, really weren't... Um, so competitive uh in the grocery segment for a long time and um you know as as you kind of mentioned the, the uh it was often um sort of by city or by region, and these stores didn't really have a lot of competition. Um, they had competition in the sense that uh, there would often be um, sort of a, you know, a, a thrifty option, a kind of middle brow option, and a higher end. Right, there would be, um, there would be know,
0: local competitors, like the Pepsi to your Coke in, in most markets and things like that.
1: Exactly, and they'd, they'd be sort of trying to hit different parts of the population. So you go to this, this, this place for your luxury goods, you go to this place for your deal you know, and there was that kind of thing. Um, but for the most part, they they didn't really face any competition in terms of, um, you know, external models or people who were trying to sell food in a different way. If you wanted to buy food um, for, from, uh, you, you know, to cook at home, you pretty much had to go to a grocery store. Um, so part of the big pivot that's happening right now is that their actual fundamental model is being threatened. It's not just like, there are other stores to compete with it 's like it 's like grocery is no longer the only game in town and not only was grocery the only game in town, but some of the biggest companies in the world essentially were the ones um, drumming up the demand for for what supermarkets did so by that, I mean you know you have Super Bowl commercials that are advertising Budweiser and Oreo and all of these brands and um you know, where do you go to get those things, uh, but your local supermarket. And so they really didn't have to do, supermarkets didn't really have to do much work to get people in the door. It was just kind of obvious, it was assumed, it was sort of the only option that you had, and that's been one of the biggest and most fundamental changes in recent years.
0: Right, actually, I'm going to come back to that one, but let's kind of go down the list a little bit. So then... So, so the, the the supermarket chains kind of uh, have this sort of natural monopoly; There's not a lot of competition really. But then comes the the WalMarts, the Costco's, and then it's these these super shopping centers where you it's one stop shopping for everything. You can get your vegetables and you can get a TV. And so, like that's the first threat to them, where someone comes to eat their lunch literally by you know Walmart adding grocery uh, food and and traditional like vegetables and fruit and things like that. Absolutely. And, 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 you know, one of the things I
1: talk about in the piece is, uh, for Walmart, the economics are, are completely different. Like they can do things like discount milk so much that they're selling it, um, below cost, uh, as a loss leader. Um, so that, you know, if you come in and buy a TV or you're buying clothes or whatever, you know, they're happy to give you the milk for free essentially. Um, and that's the kind of thing that has made the, the sort of, you know, hypermarkets they're called such an existential threat to grocery stores is just
0: their their model is is completely different so then there's other like secular trends like a a couple years ago the numbers shifted so that now americans dine out more for the first time ever um, than Mm -hmm. they than they eat at home
1: yeah that happened i think in 2010 and that was i mean you know, uh, supermarket executives had seen that writing on the wall for, you know, since at least the nineties, um, there, they, you know, in addition to the encroachment of the Walmarts and the Costco's and that kind of thing, um, they had noticed that the balance was tipping away from them in terms of how were people eating, um, you know dining out versus eating in and that did finally shift in in 2010 and it's continuing to go in, in in the balance of of you know eating away from home or meals prepared outside of home um even if they're eaten in the home and uh that's you know another big problem that, that they're really facing as people you know people have less time to cook um they're they're, they're doing it uh
0: you know less often and that's a fundamental threat to the resistance model so then you do have the rise of e-commerce which you know e-commerce is 20 years old or more at this point but it has taken a while for the grocery component of it to be a thing like i uh, in your piece uh, about three percent of groceries are currently bought online but that could yeah that could go up to 20 percent within like five years or so so this is uh, like the writing's on the wall for for E-commerce taking a bigger piece of the pie.
1: Yeah, supposedly. I mean, we don't we don't really know what's going to happen, and and it's worth pointing out that I think that um, the you know the current impact of e-commerce on grocery I think is is very oversold. It's still, you know, uh, only a sliver of groceries really are sold online. And there are a lot of kinks to work out um, before that becomes the norm. Um, you know, not not just like some of the issues that Amazon is facing in terms of, um, you know, if packages are being delivered Constantly, you know, how do we make sure that they're actually getting inside people's homes and not just getting stolen off the front porch, um, but also things having to do with food safety, you know, when it's when it comes to, uh, you know, to to meat and some highly perishable items, um, you know, what what's, what standards are really in place. A lot of the, the, the food safety law around that, you know, sort of has yet to be written. Um, so there are issues, but that said, uh, commerce is increasingly uh, moving um, on online. You know, that's going, every, you know, all those sort of prognosticators say that this is going to really become an increasing uh, way that we all buy groceries. And there will be a lot of hybrid models too. I mean, Amazon and Whole Foods are, are, are already, um, uh, working with delivery, um, uh, you know, and and other grocers are are really scrambling to do that as well. And, and to a degree, that's not new, right? You know, we, people will talk about the milkman and how how there it, there, there have been models before for groceries being uh, home delivered. So in some ways, it's a return to form. Um, but yeah, that's going to be an in, an increasing um, uh, you know f- factor in in the market.
0: Well, your piece made me think of like my own purchasing habits and this kind of comes back to what you were talking about about how in the old days the, the consumer packaged good companies did the advertising for the the grocery chains and and they were you know tightly partnered and things like that but you know anything that's in a box I don't go to a grocery store anymore if I need paper towels if I need you know yeah. th- so in a sense if that is the future if my family's buying habits represent tr- the trends then Right. The only thing that the grocery stores still offer me are those perishable items. So that if that if those problems that you're describing get solved, then then right. Then they're staring down the barrel of like, what do I need them for anymore?
1: Exactly. So that's one of the things that I, I really talk about in the piece where um that there's going to probably be this this bifurcation of retail and, and to an extent it's already happening where um you go Online for the things online does well, um, and that's being able to sort of you know price comparison shop among hundreds of different retailers and get the best possible deal um, so things like you know um, paper towels, soap, um, even canned goods to an extent um, you know those are the kind of things that I think online will will really excel in, uh, but that's not everything you know do you want to really buy? tomatoes online, right. you know, or, do you want to buy, do you right. buy yeah. or brown beef, you know, uh, do you want to buy cheese online? I mean, there's, uh, there's a certain, you know, kind of food that is highly perishable, um, you know, where we might want to select by attribute, whether that's taste or appearance or, you know, getting to sample it in the store, uh, where online retailing is not going to um, excel at that. And so and and that actually probably isn't gonna change in, in the near future. Um I, I think what people who really follow this stuff closely think is gonna happen is you're gonna continue to go to a physical store, a market of some kind in person to get, you know, your your heirloom tomatoes. Um but that, you know, their um that your paper towels and stuff are you're gonna get online. The problem with that is that a lot of those um those packaged goods, you know, whether it's 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 sort of like Um, dishwasher detergent or you know cookies and crackers that's where grocery stores make a a lot of their margin that's where that's where the markup often is highest um and so by losing that they really need to to rethink the model
0: so um yeah i mean you're painting a picture of like it the grocery the traditional grocery store is getting it from all sides because they've already had to compete with Walmart for years on price and convenience and and now mm-hmm. they have to be Amazon they have to have an online component and and then of course Amazon is is coming into their space with whole foods and um so is the is the fear that a decade, a couple decades from now, again, like has happened in other markets, that there's only like a handful of players in how food gets on our table. And, and if, if that's the case, it sounds bad to me, but are there specific reasons why that would be bad? Is it just a concept of, you know, there would be a race to the bottom in price, which is good, and also convenience, which is good, but like, would quality and variety suffer in that sort of universe?
1: Yeah. So I, I think there's a, a number of different factors to look at that. But, um, I, I, you know, I think most of the research into monopolies, you know, shows that monopolies are, are not good for, for the consumer. And, you know, price uh, tends to go up and people overpay. Um, and so I think that you will, you know, with fewer and fewer players, you start to see that kind of thing. I mean, I live in Brooklyn and there's really only one, uh, one full service supermarket within you know walking distance of of my apartment and the prices there are just outrageous um and i i think it's for a reason right it's because there's not a lot of other um um, options in in the area and so i think that's you know that kind of works as a as a as a metaphor for you know if there's fewer players in the industry uh what can tend to happen so i think a lot of it is an is an economic um you know consideration but it also in terms of the variety of food you know if if you have to be um, you know a huge uh, agricultural conglomerate in order to sell at the scale that works for a Walmart um, then that means that there's only going to be a certain approach to farming um, that's very sort of you know focused on you know, commodities and, 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 and yield, you know, and production being like the only factor that matters, um, that, that is increasingly the dominant thing. And so if there are not stores that are more nimble and able to work with, um, you know farms of of different sizes and different approaches and different value systems um then I would argue that you know something might be lost in that as well if only the the very biggest can play um you know that that means our our agricultural system and thus the actual land that we live on and the water that we drink is is going to be a reflection of that so that that might give us pause um but just too it's it's also sort of um you know a personal ethical choice i think it's like food is so. Integral. It's so it's so personal. It's literally what sustains us. And and you have to ask, you know, as as a citizen, like, is that a good situation to be in? If if, if really only a handful of the most powerful companies uh, on earth are the ones kind of calling the shots about about how we eat and what we eat and what's available and how much it costs, um, is that something we feel good about? Um, and I think that that's. Um, that's certainly a set of questions that are motivating the main character in my piece um Kevin Kelly who is an architect um who's really a, a kind of supermarket gr- uh, ghostwriter and he's trying to save the grocery store and i think what what keeps him up at night is you know um grocery stores have traditionally been a very very uh diverse industry you know where every town you know every town and city has its own uh has its own options and you know compared to Something like, you know, the movie industry, where there's a sort of handful of, of, uh, of big, you know, production companies, it's incredibly diverse. Um, and in his view, that's been uh, a, an extremely important thing for, um, for American commerce, and he, he fears that going away. So, um, yeah, I think those are all things that are really worth considering.
0: Password's award-winning password manager is trusted by millions of users and over 100,000 businesses, from IBM to Slack. It beat out 40 other options to become Wirecutter's top pick for password managers. Right now, my listeners get a free two-week trial at OnePassword.com/ride for your growing business. That's two free weeks at OnePassword.com/ride. Don't let security slow your business down. Go to OnePassword.com/ride. Just go to constantcontact.com right now. Constant Contact. Helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. So uh as you're saying, uh, the piece mostly focuses on this uh grocery store architect, uh Kevin Kelly, or the firm is it's something else, Kelly, somebody else Kelly. Shook, Shook Kelly. Shook yeah, Kelly, his yeah. partner Terry Shook. So it's 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 Shook Kelly. So his strategy, and, and it's funny also because reading the piece it reminds me of so many other stories like this where it's like he's trying to convince these old white dudes that they have to redesign yeah. their stores in a different, like mm-hmm. emotional way, and he's like trying to reinvent the wheel for these guys essentially. But what is his his basic um uh if you could sum it up like his basic philosophy in in, in his mind how the supermarket could be reimagined to to remain relevant?
1: Yeah, I think if I had to sum it up in two words, I would say that he would say um, stories matter or storytelling matters, because for years, um, supermarkets didn't have to make the case for themselves. You know, everyone needed food. It's here. Come get it. it.
0: If you build it, they will come.
1: Exactly. And it, it truly was, you know, put up a store and people would come buy food there. And now that's no longer a given. And in fact, it's an uphill battle. And so what he's trying to convince his um, customers, you know, many of, I mean, his clients, many of whom are third and fourth generation grocers, is that that's no longer enough. And they have to make a case for what they're doing. And it has to be such a strong case that people are actually going to show up Um, So what he's trying to convince them to do, and it it has been an uphill battle to an extent, is to make their stores uh, more like movie sets, you know, where you're getting aisles out of the way and you're creating these kind of um, experiential spaces, um, you know, with a lot of kind of, um, yeah, almost like, you know, you know, movie sets, um, and, and sort of slogans on the wall that, that subtly reinforce perception and, and artwork, um, and all of these things that, that, um, you know, are not just aesthetically appealing, but, but actually make the case for, um, for a set of values and for each store it's different, right? Like some of the stores are, uh, the store that I profiled Harvest Market, which is in Champaign, Illinois is all about, it's kind of like, um, it's a bit of like a Republicans, uh, vision of, of whole foods. It's, it's, a, it's very much about like, you know, American agriculture and there's pictures of, um, of combines, uh, and it's just got this real sort of homespun folksy, um, vibe, but it's doing really excellent work in, in, um, getting lo- Products from the local, uh, you know, uh, farms into the store uh, to the to the extent that there's actually a, a, something I've never seen before an in-house butter churner right, uh, right where they buy all this sweet cream by the gallon and actually sell bricks of, of fresh made butter there in the store and so that's a cool product right but it's also about storytelling I mean there's 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 this like Willy Wonka esque contraption and you get you can watch it work and you can taste it um, and that's something where Um, it's, it's, it's all, you know, in the service of making the case for like, here's what we do, here's the kind of food we sell, it's delicious there's values behind it, you can believe in it, you can taste it, and guess what? Amazon actually can't do any of those things. So in, in Kelly's view, if you're, if you're really, um, if, you're, if you're telling a good story that actually has legs and actually has products that can back up the story, um, then you are doing something that, you know, e-commerce may never really be able to do in quite the same way, and that's how they're going to stay alive. Well, it means changing everything. You know, and grocers I think are really afraid of that. It's a
0: uh, it's it's not it's not just experiential though, because it's like again, you're you're getting things like fresh butter and milk, uh, like literally fresh, as opposed to yeah. you know yeah. something you can get in a box. But also adding these things like the pre-made meals, the 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 delis, the butchers, the cafes, the things where it really it, it's like leaning into the things that can't be put into a box, the things that can't be turned into an online sort of thing. Exactly. So if you go to Harvest Market, it's incredibly unusual. I mean, they have a
1: restaurant, you know, with maybe 40 or 50 um, seating areas. You know, it's not, they don't have like a waitstaff, but you you know, you do order at at, at a counter, but um, it's, you know, you can have have breakfast, lunch and dinner there. Uh, There's a there's actually two different bars in it. There's kind of a beer-based bar and then upstairs, um, which first of all, how many grocery stores have an upstairs? There's, there's, um, there's a wine bar. Um, there's a family room with like couches and games. Um, there's an educational center where they do, uh, cooking classes and, um, and other things of that nature. So it's really functioning kind of almost like a community center. Um, and it's really, really different from from what, what most grocery stores offer. And I think that's very threatening to people. I mean, you know, uh, the business has been done a, a lot. You know, it's been done the same way for a very, very long time. And I think some of his clients um, have a hard time not only just learning new skill sets, but just branching out from what they've always known. So that's one of the, his central challenges is, is saying, like, your store can be here. It can exist in the twenty first century, but it's gonna mean changing the way you do business. And and he always says, you know, if you don't if you're not in the restaurant business in five years you're gonna be out of business.
0: Right. The restaurant business as opposed to the walking down the aisles business. Because like the analogy that I thought of was like it's sort of like the the Apple store where instead of, you know, uh, learn how to do Photoshop, it's like learn how to cook. And then also you're describing like yeah. in the cafe, there's people sitting there on their laptops for the whole afternoon and hanging out. So it's like the, the Starbucks or, uh, you know, bookstore sort of model as well. And, and, and it's all about like, like you said, it's, it's a place, it's that third place where people can hang out where it's not just get in, get out. It's almost the ig- exact inverse of those Amazon sort of cashierless stores.
1: Exactly, it's very different from that. So there's a there's um, a metric in the industry that they use called dwell time, which is basically uh, you know it's a fancy way of saying how long people spend spend, uh, spend in the store, and uh, basically the sort of logic around that is if you can increase dwell time without increasing frustration. In other words, if people are staying in the store longer, but it's not for an annoying reason, like the lines are too long or moving too slowly, then they'll, then they'll buy more and they'll, and they'll return more often. And so, um, these are all ways of trying to, you know, increase dwell time of getting people to hang around of, of, of like making it kind of their home in a place that's where they're, where they're willing to go to to not just to shop and complete a chore, but to like experience an aspect of life that they enjoy, whether it's eating or gathering with friends. And that's very different from the kind of frictionless Amazon experience, um, which is about getting in and out uh, kind of as quickly as you can. So I should say it's a little more complicated than that because part of the Amazon store model, what it has going for it is a novelty, right? So part of it too, it's not just that it's easy and you go in and out, but it is its own form of storytelling. And it's a story about, look how exciting our technology is. Look how futuristic it is. Um, isn't it cool that you can just leave without paying? Aren't we sophisticated? And so it's not to say that that, um, that those stores don't have their own narrative uh, that, they're, uh, that they're going for and aren't a kind of movie set um, of their own, but it's just a very
0: different kind of story. Well you're you're talking to a fellow Brooklynite, so shout out to Expensive as Hell Union Market and Steve Seatown. <laughs> and Um yeah. So before we before I let you go, uh this piece turned me on to uh the new food economy, which I was not aware of. So uh, just real quick, uh tell us about the new food economy and what you guys are up to over there. Sure, yeah, I'm happy to. So uh we are a non profit
1: newsroom covering you know American food basically is our beat. And we, uh, we're, we're a bit different from most of the other food publications, you know, and that, you know, we don't do, uh, restaurant reviews and we're not kind of like, you know, ranking the best burgers in the U S what we're really doing is looking at the way, um, politics, economics, and culture shape how and what we eat. Um, and so that, that will, you know, we cover a lot. I mean, we cover, we cover restaurants, we cover, um, grocery stores, we cover farms, we cover logistics and warehouses, we cover, you know, politicians, but it's all through the lens of how does food intersect with these larger ideas about, um, labor and the environment, um, and, race and income inequality um, and, and, and taste and delight as well, you know, like how food intersects with culture. Um, so that's, that's what we do. We're based in New York, um, but we have freelancers from all, all over the country. Um, and so we, you know, we're, we're trying to do as good a job as we can um, covering the totality uh, of American food in all its vastness and complexity. Well,
0: and tech. You left out tech. Uh, Joe, you'll have to come back. Of
1: course. I mean, that's one of the most exciting things about it. Yeah, it's just so much changing so quickly, whether it's, you know, lab-grown meat on the horizon or uh, we've done pieces about Amazon's, you know, delivery drone blimps that they they
0: have patents on and all this stuff. So it's an incredibly exciting time to be on this beat. Well, uh, then hopefully you'll come back uh, and talk food tech again with us sometime soon. Thanks, Joe.